Hello, everyone. Welcome to Math for Knitters. I'm your host, Lara. Oh, I'm going to shut down my other computer so it doesn't sound so loud in here. This is episode 38, um, and in this show, I'm going to rerun number 29. And I'm starting a little series here. And this isn't entirely math related, but it is very important. And it's something that a lot of knitters are, um, to be frank, kind of afraid of. I'm going to talk about um, a duplicate stitch and darning and Kitchener stitch. And now for me, all of these things are related to each other because when I got really good at darning, um, I got really good at all three things at the same time. And I think it's because when I was doing the duplicate stitch, which is also known as Swiss darning, um, it finally made me understand the way that Kitchener stitch or grafting and um, darning all worked. Because when it comes down to it, whenever you're doing these things, what you're doing is you're taking a darning needle or a yarn needle. There's like two words for everything <laughs> in this in this topic. So it's a, it's a little bit um, strange and hopefully um, I'll be able to settle down on some terms. <laughs> but basically, once I really learned how to how to, to trace um, the elements of a row of stitches really well with my darning needle, it taught me to see the stitches differently. And it made all of those other things, the Kitchener stitch and the, or the grafting and the um, darning, much easier because that's basically what you're doing. Um, you're tracing a row of stitches, be it knit stitches, purl stitches, rib stitches, whatever, with your darning needle instead of making it with your, your knitting needles and your yarn. So um, for me, like when I was trying to learn Kitchener stitch, for example, I, I had various books, I had a lot of different descriptions of it, um, and it was kind of a rote thing, like, you know, um, on the lower needle, uh, enter the left stitch as if from the knit side and yada yada it was and it was incomprehensible there I think there were like eight steps to it and um I know that various people have little rhymes for learning it or have a, like a little chant and then you can buy cards for it and it was still a crapshoot whether I got it right or not um I could still end up with a row of, of basically pearl stitches or I could have, end up with a row of twisted stitches or anything could happen, and I had no idea until I was in the middle of it whether the way I was doing it was going to work. But once I learned to really, really inspect um, my knitting and see what the stitches were doing, it was much easier. So um, I, I was going to try to do all of this in one show, but when I took the photos for it, I ended up with like 50 photos <laughs> and I didn't even do the Kitchener stitch or yeah, the Kitchener stitch or the grafting yet. So I think I'm going to break it down. I'm going to start with where I should think is the beginning, which is with Swiss darning, otherwise known as, um, otherwise known as duplicate stitch. And I'm just going to call it, um, 
duplicate stitch <laughs> because it's driving me nuts to have to say both all the time. So I'm going to write down that's what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you want to follow along, um, as I said in my blog, um, math for knitters, that's the number four dot blogspot.com. Um, feel free. Uh, you need a swatch and this is another great reason to keep your swatches. You can use them for, um, any kind of, uh, test like this and, uh, a good darning needle. My favorites are kind of have a curved tip and they're nice and big and fat. Um, I like them a lot. Occasionally I'll be doing something on really fine yarn and need something smaller, but usually they're good for just about everything. And, um, okay, so here we go. Um, we're going to start with stockinette and first of all, just decide which row you're going to do. And very simply insert your needle, your darning needle, um, under one, one stitch, just grab one entire stitch and, I like to turn the knitting so that it's facing me and I'm right-handed so I always work from the right to the left. If you're left-handed you want to work from the left to the right. If if I have to work the other direction I just turn the knitting completely around so that I'm working in the other direction but I'm still working from the right to the left if that isn't too confusing. So I'll have photos up um, too because really this is something you could talk about but really it's something you have to see I think but for you audible learners I'm going to say it. Okay, and then I like to just draw the yarn right on through. And one, another really important note is about tension with these things. Um, you're you're going to be tempted to pull really tight, especially when you're doing um, Kitchener stitch, or at least I am. Um, but it's, it's way better, and I, I swear I'm speaking from experience, to just, um, uh, just make it really nice and loose. And once you really get the hang of it, you'll be able to judge better which is too tight and which is too loose but you're better off area on the side of too loose because you can always come back in the end and just pull on any stitches that are too loose and and pull the your yarn tighter um trust me it's way easier than trying to loosen stitches that are too tight it's it's you have it's very difficult it's like the the tightest laces you ever had on a pair of uh, combat boots it's hard when you when you get them too tight um so i just pull the yarn through and you'll just see just one little one little stitch with with two lines coming out from it and that's your yarn um and you can make this easier especially if you're doing a swiss oh i just did it duplicate stitch <laughs> part of the point of duplicate stitch other than this kind of practice is to put very small color motifs on a big field of another color so rather than um doing some of the more intricate knit in techniques you can use uh Duplicate, duplicate stitch to add color uh, to an area. So, as, and that that's kind of its main purpose. So, for this exercise, you definitely want to use a different color of yarn to make your life easier. But also, you know, if you're adding your initials to something or someone else's initials to something, um, that can be kind of a fun way to do it. Okay, second step. Look for the... Um, the stitch that you've actually selected to put your yarn through the first time is actually the stitch above, the row above the stitch that you're going to actually cover with your new yarn. It, it's a little confusing and it takes a little while to get used to that, but 
when you start with, from the way we've started, you're actually starting a row above where you want to be. I probably should have said that in the beginning. But so now what you're doing is you're looking at your yarn and you can see your, your stitch. It's kind of a V and it's being held up. And you can see it on the, on the left side of, of your, on the lower left side, just below where you pulled your yarn through, um, there's a, a little leg to the stitch um, on the left side. And it's, it's kind of pointing in this, in, in this example, it's pointing uh, down and to the right. So you're going to take your, your needle and you're going to um, put the tip of it um, so that it's hitting the end of that stitch, the end of that leg of that stitch. So you're basically going into the center of the stitch below the stitch you just went through. You're making, um, and in essence, if you're thinking about in terms of um, a cross stitch, instead of a cross stitch, you're making kind of a, a Z stitch. So this is actually um, one row below and one half a stitch over from where your yarn is emerging right now. So go ahead and do that and pull that through. And now you're going to see one little line that in the right-hand example, I'm not going to do left-hand examples. I'm sorry, you'll just have to mirror image it if you're a lefty. <laughs> it's gonna, it would take me way too long to explain it both ways. Now you're going to see um, just one little line that is uh, kind of a 45-degree angle that is um, pointed f from the upper left to the, to the lower right. And, of course, your two strands of yarn coming out. Now, in this example, I actually started um, upside down or, or half stitch over because as you keep going, you're going to see that's not a full stitch that you've covered. It's only covering the left half of the stitch. Um, if that's a problem, uh, just start on the row above where you where you first entered your, your yarn there. Um, that's kind of confusing. But you'll see what I mean as you go. Okay. So now you're going back up and you're going back through the hole where the very same hole where your yarn um, actually came out the first time. So if you're thinking about where you are, where your yarn is emerging now as, as a zero point, you're going up one and to the right one. So you're going right back into the same hole where you came through before. And actually, this is an important part of duplicate stitch and Kitchener stitch. Through every stitch, with the only exception is the very first and the very last stitch, through every stitch, you should go through twice. And it's going to be, a, it seems strange, but that's what it comes down to. If you look very carefully at knit, knitted fabric, every little hole, if you identify each space in your knitting as a hole, has two strands of yarn that meet there. And so you end up going through every little hole twice. Um, so you can see now you're going through that hole and you're going to pull it through. And now uh, you're going to, you're going to keep, you're just going to keep going, um, keep going left and keep going either up or or, well, not left, but keep going either up or down and either meeting where uh, you've been before or starting a new strand. And by now you should be able to see um, where the next stitch is. Sometimes you have to stop and, and look at it for a second. 
And there are a couple more examples of this continuation. I think I ended up doing about one, two, three, four, four, four half stitches. So that's two full stitches um, in the photo. So, so you should be able to see that pretty well. So that's stuck in that stitch. And after you've done it for a while, it, it will seem so natural. Um, and to go up and down, like if you need to make a vertical line, all you do is you make your full stitch and then you take your needle and you insert it. Um, let me think of how this is done. You bring it um, when you haven't pulled through yet on the end of the, of the, of the full stitch. You bring it up underneath, under the purl bump from the back, and then up or down to, to the next row. And um, there are photos of that in the actual darning segment, which is going to be, um, I think we're going to do, let's see, we'll do, we'll do that uh, next show. So we're going to do this show is all Kitchener stitch. I'm sorry, <laughs> this show is all duplicate stitch. And then we'll do darning, which is basically very, very small uh, Kitchener stitch and a couple of other techniques. And then we'll do Kitchener stitch. So um, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to write that down so I don't forget that. Okay, so now you move on to garter stitch. We've been doing stockinette. Garter stitch is basically half uh, knit stitch and half purl stitch, if you think about it. And it works in exactly the same way. You're just tracing one particular row. So once again, uh, in this case, my garter stitch was at the top of my uh, gauge swatch. So I actually inserted the needle the very last row of what a very top row of what looked like stockinette so it was actually the very bottom row of the garter stitch and that's your first stitch and then uh, go immediately into a pearl pearl bump so when you're doing garter stitch you're doing a knit bump and then a pearl bump so pull through and then I actually um, follow that what I'm doing is I'm just tracing the yarn that's underneath where my my new yarn is so I immediately go straight up into a pearl bump and I do that by um, sticking my needle directly up and then directly down and you can see that that makes a bump. Oh. Microphone just fell down. Whoops. <laughs> Technical difficulties. Hold on. Okay, that should stay. Okay. Um, and then you proceed to the next, uh, the next stitch, which is uh, a, a knit stitch. So you're just pulling that under. And what's, what's interesting about this is their knit stitches become kind of invisible. Um, and you can actually see after a couple of stitches that it looks exactly like if you knit, if you changed um, colors after a purl row. So just kind of keep going with that. And then uh, ribbing works exactly the same way. You just have to pay even closer attention. And your only real um, danger when you're, when you're doing stuck in um, any kind of fancy stitch is losing track of which row you're on and I find it helps to just stop if I'm getting confused I just stop put the needle down stretch out the knitting and look very carefully for the particular strand of yarn that I'm supposed to be following and really this is just practice and you can see in my ribbing section that I actually didn't have a ribbing uh, <laughs> um, uh, gauge swatch so instead I'm actually using uh, a sock like a real sock um, a worsted weight um, uh, ribbed sock that I wear so that's kind of fun 
but yeah, um, happy knitting and good luck and don't worry, you can do it. And if you screw it up, all you've done is screwed up a gauge swatch, an old gauge swatch. So really, you know, you've got absolutely nothing to lose and a new skill to gain and a whole new set of skills to build on top of that. All right. I hope you're having a very, very nice summer or whenever you're hearing this. And thank you to everybody who um, has been giving me little comments on the website and in Ravelry. I, I greatly appreciate that. You can find me very easily on Ravelry. My name is math for knitters That's four, uh, the number four. And um, my Ravel, what do they call it? Oh, what's your little picture on Ravelry? Oh, I, I knew this. I swear I knew this like yesterday. My... Well, anyway, my picture on Ravelry is my adorable little kitty, Travis. Um, he's not the same one who has purred into the microphone here a couple of times. He's a little shy. But, okay, so that's pretty good. Um, our rerun today is uh, show number 29. And, okay, happy knitting. Bye. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Math for Knitters. This is Laura. This is episode 29. And I have... Uh, fun show for you today, I think. Um, basically, I'm going to talk about why and how I uh, build sweaters when I design them, and I'll walk you through the gray sweater design. I am going to write this out too, but I just don't know when, so I thought I would um, tell you. Also, I have a book review. I'm going to start with the book review because I'm always forgetting it. <laughs> But the book I have uh, for you today is called Vintage Styles for Today. It's by Lion Brand Yarn, and it was edited by Nancy Thomas and Charlotte Quiggle. And it's actually a very good book. Um, I am personally not crazy about the Lion Brand Yarns. Um, not so much out of a yarn snobbery thing, but because they're the company I had so much trouble with, with the package getting lost and... Frankly, I just did not was not impressed by their customer service. And also, it's a little bit like the way I used to feel about Kodak when I shot film. Kodak's a good company. They produce a fine product. Um, but with the exception of the very few products that they make that nobody else makes, like very, very high-speed films, certain kinds of infrared film, their products aren't any better than anyone else's and they charge a lot more. But Lion Brand Yarn is, is generally reasonably priced and they can be a little ahead of the curve on some of the more unusual novelty yarns. Like I think they actually may have invented fun fur and they're fun. It's, it's a good company. I just, they're just, I'm not crazy about their yarns, but I did like this book and um, it has 50 patterns. It has both knit and crochet. So that's kind of fun. I don't do both. My sister crochets and I knit, although I think I've told you that before a hundred times. Oh, by the way, if anybody is listening because of the uh, Knit It article or shout out or whatever, thank you for coming by. I hope you like the show. Um, I used to be a little more formal. <laughs> if you go back and listen, I was, I've relaxed a little bit, let's say, over the year that I've been doing this. So... Okay, anyway, um, but I hope you still enjoy it, and feel free to leave comments or email me, and I love questions. I love questions. In fact, um, today's 
show is is based upon a question I got because I think if I didn't have any feedback or questions from anyone, I would just run completely out of ideas and then I wouldn't podcast anymore and I would be very sad because I like it. But okay, anyway, so I'm just going to flip through this book with you. Um, I got, I picked it up. It's a paperback. Um, it wasn't very expensive. I think it's $23. And it was just kind of nice because they took some older uh, knitting patterns and kind of rewrote them. And it has a wonderful section in the front about measuring and sizes and um, like head circumferences, which by the way, my head circumference is an inch larger than the size they give for men, but that's okay. And it also explains yarn weight system, which is now I think moving more toward a more, shall we say standard system than it used to be that I think I don't know if everybody's used to it, but I I think it's a good idea in theory, but I don't know if I'm used to it yet. But the first chapter is about cardigans and jackets, and I love, they have the old photographs from the, from the original patterns, which is kind of cool. They don't really tell you a lot about the original patterns, like when they were written necessarily, but they're kind of fun, and I love I love looking at them and seeing the shape and then seeing how the sweater has been updated. So it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. And it has very, I have to say, it has extremely detailed diagrams and schematics, which is great for if you're going to um, change the size of the sweater or even if you just want to make sure that you're blocking it properly if you make it out of something like wool that, that needs to be blocked carefully. There's a, there's a vest in here I just love. It's called the Shapely Vest. That's in the second chapter. It's called Layering It On vests and shrugs so that's kind of fun and I think it's very pretty it's actually usually I buy a book if I can find like two or three patterns in it that I really like and that was one of the patterns that made me buy the book what's funny is usually I'll buy a book for for the one pattern and then end up working other patterns from the book and not the one that is why I bought the book <laughs> but you know whatever um, chapter three is about shawls and wraps which is kind of fun and I just I just love seeing the old photographs. I guess I'm kind of a sucker for that, but I, I love the everything about them. And there's a, there's even one dog sweater that just has a drawing, because I guess they were just like, okay, we're not taking a picture with the sweater with the dog. But the fourth chapter is about sweaters for everyone, which includes the dog, uh, you know, the man, the child. I love the child one. It's so cute. The little boy in the original photo has ringlets, actual ringlets, like. And little knickerbockers. It's just adorable. And then the the little boy who's the the modern picture is also very cute. He's playing on a swing set kind of thing. And so there's a lot of different ranges in here. It looks like all of the pieces are knit flat. Yeah, knit flat and then sewn together, which is not my favorite way of making a sweater. But of course, you could alter it. I like to take ideas from books like this and say, well, I really like that edging, I like that knit pa stitch pattern, I like that shape, and then kind of applying that over my own idea. And there's a chapter about hats, which is kind of cute. Some of them are a little not quite my style, but they're fun. And then, of course, the baby chapter, which I've been, I love making babies things. It's just lucky that I know people who have babies, because I kind of knit babies things in the place of socks. Like, most people would make socks when you're working in a theater or on a plane or, or something like that, 
just something small and portable. And I tend to do baby stuff instead. I, I am doing more socks now than I used to, but I just don't do that many. And then chapter seven is about fingers and toes, mittens, gloves, slippers, and socks, which includes some really interesting use of fun fur, which I am um, not so crazy about. But my favorite, there's, <laughs> there's a mitten in here, a striped mitten. And in the original pattern, it's like an elbow, link, elbow length evening mitten, which is so interesting. It's hard to imagine wearing an elbow length evening mitten. Uh, evening gloves, I can understand, but an evening mitten. I guess you would have worn it to go out riding in a carriage. I, I don't know, but it's, it's really funny and cute. And, but the, 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 the modern pattern is shorter cuffed. But I guess if you were feeling ambitious, you could make it go all the way up your arm. But it's kind of fun. Slippers, socks, of course. Um, and then on the home front, blankets, throws, and more. A hot water bottle, cozy, which I actually love those. I think those are great. They're fun to make, and you can make them crazy colors and have fun with them. And they're still small. So you can really work out some of your different ideas on something like that. And let's see what they say about it. I think that's actually the last one in the book. Yeah, it's the very last pattern in the book. Before the days of electric blankets and reliable heating, the best way to warm the cold sheets was to tuck a hot water bottle under the covers. So it's really cute. It's actually a crocheted cover, uh, which means I can't make it, but my sister could. And then in the back, there's a um, little uh, techniques area, which uses drawings, and it's actually very clear. And then a bibliography which I love because I really like to try to find the books that inspired the books that I have so that I can find more books and either get them at the library or buy them. <laughs> That's actually how I, um, I guess I could talk a little bit about how I started knitting again. I, I don't remember if I've talked about this before. I don't think so. But basically, I learned to knit when I was really young. I, I was in, it was like daycare. So I was probably six or seven. I didn't know how to cast on or bind off. So one of the workers at my daycare did that for me. And I just would knit scarves, long scarves on big needles. And she would cast it off for me and I would give it to somebody. Actually, I was talking to my mother at Christmas and she does not remember this, probably because I never brought any of them home. I always cast it off and then just gave it to whoever said they wanted it which is a little funny actually <laughs> so my mom didn't know I, I learned to knit when I was a, a kid anyway eventually that daycare worker I think she stopped working there and so I didn't have anyone to start and stop for me and I just stopped knitting I had some crochet hooks and some yarn and every once in a while I would dig them out and dig out a little pamphlet about crochet and try the different stitches, the double crochet, the single crochet, the, I don't know, there were two or three. And I would just try maybe a dozen stitches in each stitch, and then I would stop and pull it out and put it back. I don't know why I did that, but I, I do m remember it very distinctly. I would sit on the floor of my, I had a large walk-in closet, and I would sit on the floor of my closet and do this. It was very relaxing. And I did other fiber art type things, I would take the styrofoam from when you buy meat, and cleaned of course, Whoops. knocked over my flashlight, and I would weave with them with yarn, I would, I would wrap yarn around the stick 
you know, slits in the cart in the styrofoam and wrap the yarn around it one way and then come back the other way with a needle. And I guess you'd call it tablet weaving. And I would just make these little weavings and, and have them as blankets for my dolls. And I just liked it. And um, then I grew up and went to college. And my junior year of college, I was pursuing a physics degree. And I just, f I was in Massachusetts, and I just felt that I wanted something physical to do. That, you know, I was working and working and working, and all I ever got was more paper and more chalk on my hands. And I loved to work on the big chalkboards that we had. And so I decided I wanted to learn how to knit. So I walked down to the yarn store, the local, the local in my in my little town, which we had several in the area. Actually, I lived very close to Northampton, so I was really spoiled, <laughs> not knowing it, not knowing that I was spoiled to have webs right there. But um, I walked down to the little one that was closer to where I lived and bought some blue wool. Uh, it was like a navy blue and some number eight needles and a little how to knit book. And I walked back to my room and I sat down and I taught myself how to knit again. And the first thing I made was a, sh a shawl out of that blue wool um, for my twin sister, which I gave to her. And it was small and it wasn't done very well, but she's kept it all these years. She doesn't wear it. Um, I think she mostly just throws it on the back of a rocking chair, kind of as decoration. And I, so that was my first piece of knitting again. And then I learned, um, it took me a week to figure out how to yarn over because I just, it had the, it said yarn over, but it didn't explain what a yarn over was or how to make one. And since I didn't have anyone to ask, I didn't know. And I just kept looking and looking and looking online. And finally, I think somebody described it better than, than the book I had that didn't describe it. And also, we had interlibrary loan. And Massachusetts is a huge knitting community. And I would go to the library and get all the books at, at, in both the local library and my college's library about knitting. And they even had some in special collections that were out of print, like Priscilla Gibson Roberts' Knitting in the Old Way, which has since been reprinted, but when, in, when I was in college, it wasn't in print. And books like that, just lots and lots and lots of books. And I would just read them. I would just sit down and read the book. And so I, I learned about a lot of techniques. I didn't actually have time to try them all, but I would just read about the technique, like double knitting and... I did do some double knitting and lace and other things. And I would get to the end of the book. And just like with this one, I would look to see if it had references in the back or further reading. And then I would request all... Oops. Phone ringing. Hold on. Okay. Where was I? Um, I must have read almost 100 books that year about knitting. Anytime I wasn't thinking about physics, I was thinking about knitting. Or I was knitting. Um, I started a campus knitting club, which did not last longer than I was there, unfortunately. <laughs> I taught several of my friends to knit. I love, I love teaching to knit. I love it. I still love it. It's fantastic. And in college, there are so many people running around who want to learn, and um, it was a great opportunity. I, I probably taught about two dozen people how to knit. And I just, I, it was wonderful. It really grounded me and gave me something to relax me because um, 
the work I was doing I enjoyed, but it was very, very hard for me. A physics degree at the college that I was in is like learning how to think in an entirely new way every semester, sometimes two or three different ways at once. And it was just a little overwhelming for me, but I did like it and it was good for me. But so that's how I learned how to knit. And I think, ra I mean, my ravenous uh, <laughs> desire for knowledge has not uh, fallen off. I still get my hands on just about every book that I can get my hands on. And uh, now, unfortunately, I buy a lot of them. But I love owning books. I love books. I used, to, I used to be the same way about cookbooks. I used to buy cookbooks all the time. My cookbook collection is kind of stalled now probably, f you know, in a, for good, in a good way. So I, I may, may buy just one or two books a year now for cookbooks, but if I had the money, I would probably buy every single knitting book ever published. <laughs> but I do have a, a good library here, and I have a good interlibrary loan if there's something I really want to read carefully before I decide if I want to buy it. Um, so that's, uh, in the middle of all that, ravenous knowledge acquisition, I discovered Elizabeth Zimmerman. Um, her name came up a lot online at the time I read the knit list a lot. Um, Nitty didn't exist yet. A lot of the online resources didn't exist yet. Blogs didn't really exist yet, as far as I know, um, at that time. I mean, they may have just been starting out at that time. I just, I didn't know about any of them. So I was actually kind of isolated. Um, I was learning everything I knew from books, and I had friends, but all the friends who I had who knit learned to knit from me. Um, I never went to a knitting group, ever. And then I moved to uh, Calif uh, not California, North Carolina for the summer, and I did the same book thing there. I didn't know anybody there either who was a better knitter than I was. And then I graduated from college and went to Florida. I went, went to Ohio. And there, at the very, very end of my two years there at, in school, I did meet a good friend of mine who is a knitter, who is a wonderful person. I'm very glad that I met her. So that was the first inkling that I had that knitting was something that could be social in a real true sense. And now I, I rely not solely, but I rely very deeply upon my knitting group here to help me with everything. Like, you know, do I have to get rid of the rabbit in my yard? I don't mind him being there. I don't think he's hurting anything. So I go and I ask everybody, what do I do? Should I leave him alone? I want to leave him alone. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave him alone. But I was worried because I thought, well, people get rid of them for a reason. I guess because they like tulips more than they like rabbits. But my thing is the rabbit's there all year. You know, my tulips, even if they're left unmolested by the rabbit, would only live for a few months. Whereas I can watch a little rabbit hopping around back there all year. And he might eat some of my rhubarb too, but good lord, I can eat it all. So let him have some. He does tease the cats, but, you know, whatever. At least I haven't named him. <laughs> but he's part of the landscape of my home to me. And I want to leave him alone. And so I just wanted to check with everybody that he wasn't going to undermine my home or, you know, I don't know, harm me in some way. And he's not. So I'm going to leave him. Anyway, <laughs> a little digression there. Sorry. Um, the reason I, I, could, I build sweaters uh, th the same way I design 
any other thing. Um, sometimes I do a little graphic design. I always start with a concept or a limitation. So for instance, last year I made two blue sweaters for myself. You, you saw part of one of them in the waist shaping notes and for those, I just wanted a shape that fit well. And I hadn't yet made a sweater for myself that fit well at that time. And that was last February. And so I made one. And then I realized I had lots of yarn left. So I made another. I actually had enough yarn for two sweaters. And so I had that kind of down. I took very good notes. I, I do try to be a little bit scientific about things and take good notes. And that helps me in a couple of different ways. It allows me to, if something works, reconstruct the thing that worked, or if something doesn't worked, work, deconstruct the thing that didn't work and figure out why. So that next time I can fix it, or next time I'll avoid having that problem. So it's just one of the things that I do. Um, I have showed, shown you notes, scans of my notes in the past, but I'm not going to do that today because this is a little bit too convoluted. For this sweater, I had this gray yarn, and I knew... I really wanted to use this pattern, this um, dragon skin pattern. I used it, I made an afghan for my sister's wedding in 2001, and I did seven panels, one big center panel, and then three panels on each side that were, you know, two of the same pattern. And one of the patterns I chose was, was dragon skin because I wanted um, to make sure that my sister and her husband were protected in some way by this thing that I made. And so I just had remembered I really liked the pattern and I wanted to make a sweater from it. And the gray yarn seemed perfect. It's just a gray wool, you know, light worsted weight. And so I got out my size seven needles and I, and I swatched it. Um, I did moss stitch for the borders and I did a number five needle for the, for the ends. So I get out my notebook here. Um, my gray sweater and dragon skin. It's on page 136 of Barbara Walker's second Treasury of Knitting Patterns. And I even wrote down to myself what I did on the swatch. I had number five needles and number seven. And for the swatch, I had 36 stitches, eight rows of moss stitch, then switched to number sevens and worked dragon skin with five stitches of moss on each side. And also, um, the pattern is actually written to use an M1 increase in just one of one way. And it turns out that if you pick up the M1 increase from one from the front, then it looks one way. If you pick it up from the back, it looks another way. And so I experimented a little bit on the swatch to see which way I wanted to go for which side of the pattern. And if you look at the pattern carefully, you'll see what I mean. So I decided that I would use the take the M1s from the back on the right side of the ribbing or on the right side of the center stitch. And then from the front on the left of, of the center stitches. So then I, I made my swatch and I soaked it and blocked it to lie flat with um, my blocking TIG wires. And then I got my gauge. I got um, 5 inches was 26 stitches and 30 rows was 4 inches. And I did the math about that. And then I started just sketching and drawing and thinking about what I wanted. I knew I wanted waist shaping for sure. And I decided to do those over stockinette panels on the sides so that I wouldn't go crazy trying to decrease or increase this pattern. Um, and I decided on, on ho originally I wanted many hooks and then I ended up just doing one. 
and then I looked at Barbara Walker's um, book, Knitting from the Top Down. I think that's what it's called. And I was kind of prevaricating because I thought, well, I want to do a set in a short row from the top sleeve. And I tried it and the, no matter what I did, the wraps on the short rows just did not look right. And I was at a knitting group when this happened and my good friend Judy said, well, just do a saddle shoulder then. Look at that pattern. It makes a little rectangle really easily. So just make a saddle shoulder. And so I, I turned to that section of the book and that's what I did. Um, my, I did take lots of measurement. I took out one of the blue sweaters from last year that fits so nicely and I measured the sweater to find out what kind of sizes I should do. And I measured my uh, back from the bone of my shoulder to the bone of my other shoulder, which turns out is about 15 inches, which is perfect for this pattern coming out at um, five inches across for one full repeat. And I said, okay, a third of a repeat is 15 stitches. And so I made a very narrow strip from the neck to the bone in my shoulder. Um, they were five inches um, each, so it made them about 36 rows. And then I realized I needed three repeats of the pattern um, for the front and for the back for those 15 inches. And I just kind of drew myself a little picture about how I was going to make that line up the way I wanted it to. And then I had my saddle shoulders and I picked up across the back, straight across, and then across the front with... Um, you know, cast on and everything. It, it doesn't really, sorry, it doesn't make sense. So basically you have your saddle shoulders and if you, if you thought about taking, put your hands on the tops of your shoulders and that's what the saddle shoulders cover, that's what size they are. So I kind of backed away from the microphone there. Now, if you think about the way that a sweater fits, basically if you pick up a long, um, three sides of those rectangles, the two long sides and the short end, which is the top of your shoulder, and then you leave the the front or the top of the rectangle um, unpicked up because that's where your neck goes. And then you, you cast on the stitches you need to make the back neck and then the stitches you need to make the front close. And um, basically, I worked... Um, so for the back, I picked up 20 stitches off the saddle shoulder, cast on 26 and picked up 20 more. And then in the next row, I... I increased a little bit because I just I couldn't get 26 pickup or 23 pickup stitches out of the each shoulder. I, it didn't work with the with the yarn. So I did that. I picked what I did was I picked up the back, and then I worked 12 rows straight. And then for the front, I left off um, the 26 in the center, which which would have been the same as the back. And then instead, I made um, one repeat of one width from the pickup. So I cast on 18 stitches, picked up around one side of the shoulders, cast on 18 stitches, placing the markers for the sleeves. And this isn't really very clear, is it? <laughs> Probably would be better if I just wrote this. But basically, I didn't really put any shaping in the sleeves, I just or in the shoulders. I just made these little rectangles and then picked up and made my neck and made my back and then worked around. And um, did that until the, the everything was closed up and done, and basically followed very loosely the instructions for the saddle shoulder in uh, Barbara Walker's book, 
that does that would be the same front and back. And instead of making it completely the same front and back, I let the neck drop a little bit, but still left it as a square neck. And also, it's a cardigan, whereas her design is a um, sweater. So, okay, I'm sorry. I, I should have just written this out because it, it isn't very easy for me to really interpret my notes. <laughs> but basically, I measured the blue sweater, and I knew that after six and a half inches from the top of the shoulder was when um, I needed to start increasing a little more to get a little bit more width in the bust. And I did that until the sweater was seven and a half inches deep from the top of the shoulder. And then I divided from my underarm, casting on three inches of ease um, under the arms. And actually, I think that's what Barbara says is the most you can really get away with. So it's, it's good because I wanted it to be a very form-fitting sweater without being too small. So I did all that. And then after all that was done, then the, I did started the waist shaping four inches after the division for the underarms. And this is going to be different for everybody. I mean, this is really a sweater for my body, for my shape, the way that I like it. You know, so if you're a different size or shape, which you probably are, then you need, you need to really start from first principles and think about the shape of your garment and then just fit it to you or to the fit that you want all the way down the line. And the reason I'm not actually going to write a pattern for this is because it would drive me insane. I cannot imagine trying to do different sizes with this with this pattern, you know, stitch by stitch kind of directions. Instead, when I write it, I'm just going to give you kind of a general outline, kind of a fill in the blank thing, but you have to be ready to make your own decisions. <laughs> um, that's all there is to it. I just I just can't do it for you. Um, feel free to make a carbon copy of my sweater, though, and just give it to whatever size 12, 5 foot 3 girl you know. <laughs> um, and I did the same thing for the sleeves. I measured from the underarm to the body and blah, 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 blah. Just the usual stuff. And then um, I explained to you last week how I do my finishing and blocking. And then I actually ended up sewing the clasp just right about where um, my... Uh, at the bottom of my bra area and just one and so it kind of pulls in the middle and I think it looks really cute so gosh that was really rambling I'm sorry I really I thought I've got my notes I'll be organized but instead no they really do require interpretation to make sense <laughs> um, so that's that's how I designed that sweater uh, vaguely and so I, I built the sweater based upon the stitch pattern that I liked. Last year I was building sweaters based upon the shape that I would want. Now that I understand the shape, I'm going for the stitch pattern. And then I think my next sweater is going to be just a short um, kind of sweater that has three-quarter sleeves, and I'm going to make it out of bamboo, and I'm going to wear it for belly dancing class to keep my arms covered up and, and either warm or shaded, depending on the weather. Hopefully the bamboo isn't too hot for the summer. And we'll see how that goes. I'm, I'm really interested to see how that works. Before I can do that, I'm having a finishing uh, marathon. I, <laughs> I have these golf club covers that I have promised people at work for months and months I think I think the first one was actually requested of me in October and um, I've been a little lax in the whole golf club cover thing so I'm just now finishing the first set I need to make the pom-poms today 
that is on my to-do list and dang it, it's something I'm definitely going to do today. That's all there is to it. Um, and then I'll start the, the second set, which I don't remember when they were asked for, I think in November. I did warn the people that Christmas knitting would definitely get in the way, although they have somewhat noticed that we are a bit past Christmas at this point. So yeah, uh, always think twice before you accept commissioned knitting. <laughs> I mean, I thought, I thought they would just be these fast little, because they, they were fast when I made them for my dad. But I was making them for my dad, and I was making them for fun. And it's different when you're making a product to sell somebody. Um, so that's what uh, that's where I am right now in my knitting life. I'm finishing that. I have a baby sweater that I probably knit like in November in my bag, and all I have to do is finish the shoulder seams and sew on the buttons, and I just cannot do it. Last night I finally made myself doing the ends on it. But man, I don't know what it is with this baby sweater, but someday I'll do it. I have like three quarters of a hat that actually is really almost finished now. So maybe I really should just finish it. And I'm, I'm developing a habit where I try, I shove, well, I'm not working on something really big like a sweater. I'm shoving all my little partly finished items or mostly finished items into one big knitting bag and then I just carry them around. And as if I'm going to like magically do them by osmosis, <laughs> but I'm really trying to make myself finish up everything before I start my next sweater. We'll see if I can make myself do that. Um, it's always a challenge, but anyway, I hope you're having a good knitting week and I hope to talk to you soon. And rem remember, it's nothing to be afraid of. Just take control of your knitting. <laughs>